You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 176, Field Trip to the Athens Asylum Center. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. On the last episode, we talked about studying the issues in Athens, Greece, and we explored some of the big picture goals and outcomes that came out of Sandy's recent trip there with uh, the Global Center for Women and Justice team. And we talked about student involvement and so many of the takeaways that happened. On this episode, we're going we're gonna to zero in much more of a micro conversation, Sandy, on one particular piece and one particular experience of, of being in Greece during that time. And we're going to really look at in some detail the asylum center uh, that you visited. I tell you, when we arrived at the center and we saw the way the gate is positioned with the kind of metal guides like you were in line to go through security at the airport and it just winds and winds and winds back and forth. And knowing that refugees show up there at six o'clock in the morning waiting for the office to open at 8 a.m., trying to get in first. And they have their whole family with them, mom, dad, three or four kids, and they're waiting there to get inside and to begin to understand what that means. And, you know, you think about asylum, uh, finding a safe place that you can legally stay. That's the goal. And, and so many of the, the pictures that are emblazoned on our minds from the news reports of boats capsizing and people, people being pulled out of the water to safety, that's just the beginning because now they have to figure out how to build a new life and they need to build it in a safe place. I have so many things I'm curious about this experience and the experience at the center, Sandy. I'm curious first, and I know there's not an easy answer to this question, but who are the refugees who show up in this line? Where do they come from? What's their story to the extent that you know? Well, in that part of the world, the majority of the refugees that we met and encountered were from conflict areas in in Syria. Some were escaping for uh, some of the other issues that are related to how you seek asylum for religious persecution. We met asylum seekers from Iran, from northern Iraq, Kurdish areas in Syria and in Turkey, but they all had the same goal in mind. We want to be in a place where we are safe and our children have a future. Mm. So a lot of what we've been hearing on the news in the last few years and the conflict in the Middle East and, of course, the Syria mm. conflict, you are front and center of the people who have now 
emerged from that and showed up in Greece seeking that that protection. Well, and and here's the thing that makes you Greece a little unique. What I learned from our our NGO partners that we were working with is that refugees that made it further west in Europe are being sent back to their country of of entry to the EU because they didn't qualify for asylum or for residency or, or whatever, or the, the numbers were cut off in countries like Germany and Norway and, and, and so on. And so the country they entered in with a boat falling apart was Greece. Mm-hmm. And so they're coming back and now they're starting the process again there. So even though people say, well, the crisis is over, right? Greece is a country of 11 million people, about 5 million are of the age where they're working, and unemployment is about 30%. Wow. So so you have an economically stretched country that just is emerging from austerity measures that we've also followed, and they're the ones tasked with receiving hundreds and thousands of these refugees. And, you know, once you come in, we they took us in just like we were refugees. They brought us in. And we, we then, once you get through that, that snaking, get through the front gate, then you're in this big, big, big holding area. And we stopped and we took some pictures. And, and you start thinking about why you're here. And, and there's a little area for children to play. And there's a, a little center where you can draw pictures. And, and I'm looking at the pictures and I, you know, I'm going to give it to Andrew and see if he can't post it somehow on our, on our page. But one 14 year old girl, and this was the story told to me, drew this picture. It was very simple, black and white. And it was one arm clasping another arm. So my, my hand around your elbow and your hand around my elbow, but I can't see you because you're underwater, but I'm pulling you up. Oh, and, wow. and so the, when you're at the border in one of these landlocked countries and you close the door, they can't get in, but they're still standing on dry land. In Greece, uh, you, what are you going to do? Throw them back into the sea? So this conundrum of, of responsibility and the, the disproportion in resources was just so highlighted in looking at those pictures and seeing these kids and how they, they and lots of the kids drew pictures of the water. And it was just a reality check for us. Is it, speaking of the water, is it, Greece's geography and proximity and, and you know, uh, of course, uh, being adjacent to the ocean that makes it the country of destination or are there other factors that well, emerge too? you know, it is the easy access to the water. When, when I was there last year, one of the newest refugees to come into bridges was a young man who had swam from the border of Turkey to an island that was like 70 miles, but he swam uh, to get there. Wow. And you can't you can't do that unless you have a lot of islands and you know this kind of thing. So that that does make it the proximity and and the water is a very porous border, obviously. 
but it is also a country that has a lot of things in common with these other countries. The The culture is very Mediterranean and the the weather, the food is regionally across the board very similar. So it's it's not hard to set up housekeeping and and have rice and olives and olive oil and all those kinds of things and tea. Mm. All of those things are not a problem. And forgive me for asking what's a completely naive question. Why not a country like Turkey and some of the other countries that you know, or even closer in the area. Well, and there are refugees in those countries. And I think that in a previous podcast, I'll look for it. When I came back from Istanbul, the researchers there had already begun to identify how many children of refugee families, especially adolescent kids, were missing and presumed trafficked. Mm. And, And that was one of the issues that we saw over and over again here too, because smugglers don't even seem to care very much about being found out. They're recruiting through social media. I can get you where you want to go. And it's all about the profit and the fraud aspect. You know, people are willing to take risks when they're really desperate Mm. and they lose their money and they fall into really dangerous circumstances. Which is, of course, why we're talking about this and mm. why you were there, which is if the connection, uh, if, we're, if for those who may not be putting the pieces together on this, that so much of this relates to human trafficking. Right. Because human trafficking so much is driven by the economics uh, on all sides. And people who are in a situation like this in refugee status are very susceptible to influence and making decisions that they may not otherwise make. You and I would make some of those decisions if we were in that situation. So we often, as as trainers and observers, we say, well, if you train the frontline people to identify victims of trafficking, we'll be able to intercept them when they're still on the islands, we'll be able to do this. And I spoke to one of the members of the um, UN Special Rapporteur's office. And she said, you know, we've made visits down to the islands and we're starting to understand we have to do self-care for the people who have been doing these rescues over and over again, the people that are receiving the desperate people. And she said, my favorite quote was from a Coast Guard who said, if my mother was in the water, I wouldn't recognize her. I just have to get the people out of the water and then get the next person out of the water. And that level of exhaustion, and they keep seeing more and more and more, that kind of, of self-care has to become part of the, the solution because the the people that are doing this in a small country like Greece with limited resources are worn out. And to that point, and I really want to shout out to Miss Eleni Petraki, who invited us and arranged for our whole class to tour the facility and meet so many of their, her colleagues who are doing this in very difficult circumstances. And when we met one of the... Uh, first 
case managers that started at the very beginning. He, his name is Tassos. He has a PhD. I wish I could pronounce his last name. But he told us we didn't really have, oh, here's what you do. We had to figure it out as we went along. Mm-hmm. We knew we had to, to investigate. We had to get good translations. We couldn't just guess what they were saying. There's so many pieces to doing an asylum investigation, which one of the issues is people who might be seeking asylum are different than people seeking economic migrant status. And there is a there is a, pr- a different process. It costs to apply for migration status, but asylum is free. It's a human rights issue. And so you can imagine that people might apply for asylum that don't actually qualify. So they uh, have to do that investigation. And when they're doing that, they listen to stories that will break your heart. They listen to families who have lost one or two of their children, have been separated from their spouse. One spouse is in Turkey. One spouse is in Greece. How do we get them back together? And those are really difficult stories to listen to. And so Tassos, he said, I wrote a letter and said, we need some help here. And so now they do have a couple of psychologists doing self-care counseling for about 300 case managers. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine what that means. And Greece is one country with this uh, impacted by this refugee crisis and the asylum process. But if you look at, at a little country like Lebanon, it's like the size of, of, a, of a big county in California, and they have over a million refugees. So when we look at it from our comfortable place here in California, we don't really see some of the major challenges that are being faced on the ground there. For those who show up in the line at the Asylum Center in Athens, how many will ultimately receive asylum? Uh, we asked that question that day, and we were told that about 47% will receive asylum. And by asylum, that means they have a residency permit. But here's the part that was really new for me to begin to understand. Once they get into the process of seeking asylum, they have some protection rights that make it so that they can live there, they can their kids can go to school, and they can work while they wait for the investigation, while they wait for the final decision. So it, no wonder so many are, are going down that, that path then. Um, they hear that number 47. On one level, that seems like, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot that get asylum. Mm. And at another level, it's well, what happens to the other 50%? Do you know? Well, it depends on what their circumstances are. Some are able to reapply and appeal. Others realize, okay, I am going to have to go through the immigration process. Mm-hmm. And so so it would it would depend. But for some, it means they become much more vulnerable to being trafficked because they will now take the risk to go with a smuggler that may be trafficking them. 
since yeah. they have no other options, essentially. Right. The other right. option would be to go back. Can they even get back, though? I mean, how did, it's, so com- it's so complicated. It, it is, and it depends what their country of origin was as to how accessible it is to mm. get back. Wow. But, you know, the whole issue of asylum is based on the Geneva Convention of 1951 relating to the status of refugees. And it is based on the fact that someone has left their country, fled, and cannot return to it because of a well-founded fear. And that's what we have to investigate, that he or she will be persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. And they have to meet one of those requirements. And the part that is in the the text on their Greek webpage is this is not a philanthropic act. It is an obligation of our country pursuant to the international conventions and Greek law. Greek law. So, so they take their responsibility very seriously and they do their very best. We watched how kind and compassionate they were and they've developed, you know, areas for children. One of the unique special circumstances is when kids get separated, usually they're teenagers from their family. So creating special resources for unaccompanied minors that explain to them in, um, what do you call it? It's not a comic book. It's a graphic artist. Mm. Yeah. Um, they've, they've actually developed that, and it's in like nine different languages. And they hand that out to youth so that they know what their rights are and that they can apply for asylum on their own. And there's oh, a special wow. process for them. I think one of the, the things that was the most surprising to me because I've, I've never studied asylum law. I don't know anything, but to know that these kids had the right to go to school from the moment they got their first little piece of paper that says I've, my parents have applied, the whole family is now legally in the country and, and they have that paper and they celebrated. I watched families. Yes, we've got it now. And so but integration is not that easy because the kids don't speak Greek. Mom and dad don't speak Greek, but you're going to go to a Greek school. So then a lot of the NGOs are doing Greek lessons. So you begin to really change what do we need to do. So last week we were packing nappies, and this week we're teaching um, grade school Greek. Wow. I mean, I think about the desperation, Sandy, and like, that excitement of getting that slip of paper all to really just enter into a whole new level of challenge. Uh, even, even once you, even those who get the asylum status of like, there's a very difficult path ahead for a long time of exactly. learning a new language, integrating into a culture, having left almost certainly extended family members behind uh, and been separated. And it's, it's. And getting your education recognized in Europe, that's a huge process. And so now you're going to qualify to be a bus driver instead of an engineer. How do you become a teacher when there's no school in the language you teach in? Yeah. So. Certainly not all, but some some of the refugees coming are very highly educated. And, highly, and, you know, yeah. Because of circumstance in their country. 
were displaced. Exactly. And when I was at the NGO training day that we talked about in the last episode, one of the things that the NGOs were talking about is we need dentists. We need dentists. And so the day before we left, I met a young man who had just arrived, an asylum seeker, and he's a dentist. And so I started asking, so how do we find a way to get his dental um, degree and his license recognized in Greece so that he can serve other refugees? And that's that's part of the process how to, of reintegration and building these new little communities so that they actually can serve each other. Mm-hmm. One of the things that they pass out to the, the refugees is a list of their rights and obligations. And it's so important for them to begin to understand that they cannot be deported when they're in the process of having their application examined. And so they have some security. And this becomes important because if someone tells you that if you don't go with me, then this is what's going to happen to you, they're really easy and vulnerable to being taken advantage of. So making sure that they understand their rights is a big piece of keeping asylum seekers from being recruited and exploited by traffickers. Mm-hmm. They also are able to work under Greek law. And I found that really interesting. And so, because when I found out they were looking for jobs, I thought, oh, they're looking for black market jobs. No, they're looking for legal jobs. And they find jobs doing pretty much menial labor, washing dishes, um, serving tables, doing all kinds of hotel work and agricultural work, those kinds of things. But those are issues that can easily evolve into some kind of exploitation. And they had a big case um, last year in the strawberry fields that was a labor trafficking case. And so that's why it's really important for asylum seekers to learn what their rights are and that they can work according to Greek law. I noticed one of the things that you have mentioned in your notes here is... uh, some of the myths that are prevalent still. Could you share those with us? Because I think that that's something, I mean, this is new information for me too. Yes. And in fact, those myths are, there's five of them that were just kind of recently part of a, a discussion in the media in Greece. And I think the first myth that our students come back to America with is the myth that the crisis is over and the refugee crisis. the refugee crisis is over and it isn't over and because we see people living in really substandard housing they're still living in crowded camps they're still living separated from their families they're still not in a place where their kids can go to school they're living without a, finding a job where unemployment, sure, so the law says you can get a job, but unemployment's 30%. So this isn't doesn't bode well for becoming a self-sustaining family. So the crisis isn't over. The second myth 
is that we can easily separate refugees from economic migrants. And that's a really big job. That's why it takes so long. It can take several months for an asylum seeker to get their paperwork and their investigation completed because they don't want Greece to become an asylum paper mill. They want to have well-documented legal asylum cases. And so people who might abuse the situation to get asylum when they really are just here to find a new job because they they wanted a better job than what they had, which that's a, a good reason to become a migrant, but it's not the not the same not kind asylum. of dire right. circumstances that an asylum seeker. That's really difficult to determine. The third myth is telling human stories is enough to change people's minds. And I've actually found that pretty true myself, Dave. I've told a few stories and people say, yeah, that's really sad. But, and of course, when you say but, it's like everything else I said doesn't matter now. Yeah. The reality is, you know, um, they're, they're coming in and taking jobs from other people. And I'm talking about um, this is what people are saying in some of the other countries where they've closed the doors there in the EU for workers. And recently, just this last week, a ship that picks up migrants, the boats that have capsized or are in danger of capsizing, was denied the ability to dock in Italy. I don't know where they're going to go. So the the idea that just knowing that this is a horrible story and the boats are capsizing and children might die, that's not enough to change people's minds. The fourth myth is that the crisis is a threat to European values. And that's probably a little bit along some of the religious and traditional differences culturally with the majority of the refugees and the majority of the the home country. But my personal experience is I watched families and I watched them take care of their kids and keep their kids safe and provide for their kids and educate their kids. And this sense of I'm building something for my family. And, and I don't know if it was who I was working with, our partners, but the majority of the people that we worked with had families and they were there because they wanted something better for their children. I think that's a pretty common value. Mm, indeed. Yeah. And then that fifth myth is history is repeating and there's nothing we can do about it. And, you know, that just makes me mad because we're supposed to learn from history, right? Right. Not repeat Indeed. it. And there is something we can always do something. Sandy, we were uh, talking today as we were preparing for our conversation that uh, we do, by the nature of the the focus of this podcast, we do uncover difficult situations a lot in these conversations. And um, of course, our hope is is that we both, of course, and our partners and the and you who listen to the show will walk away with a greater understanding so that uh, we can be partners in making progress in ending human trafficking. And you know it is very much about, 
studying the issues first so we can ultimately be a voice and make a difference. And if we understand more of what's going on in the world, I know I've learned a bunch just in the last 20 minutes, uh, we will be in a better position to be helpful when the time comes. As we talked about in the last episode, even maybe perhaps asking the right questions when we are in the situations we find ourselves in in this community. And I'm just so grateful for your work and you taking um, so much care and, um, and, and putting so much effort into uh, making these strides to build partnerships around the world. Well, we're so well embraced and we're so grateful to our Greek partners at the Asylum Center in Athens and to Eleni Petraki and all of her team for allowing us to experience firsthand what it's like to be in that center and to really grow our appreciation for the huge undertaking that is done with so much compassion and so much commitment. As we're talking, Sandy, I'm thinking, you know, we're learning so much as we go. And and as we're learning and we're studying these issues, we also are building knowledge about things that we know to be true. And as you pointed out a moment ago, you know, we history doesn't need to repeat itself. Uh, part of the reason we spend this time and, of course, the work of the Global Center for Women and Justice is uh, so much focused on studying the issues so we can be a voice and ultimately make a difference. And I am making that call to you as well. If you are of that mindset as well and don't want history to just necessarily repeat itself because that's the way it's been before, uh, here's a starting point for you is to go on to the endinghumantrafficking.org website. And if you go there, you will see a place where you can download a copy of Sandy's book, The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. It is not the end-all be-all, of course. Uh, None of our work is. It is, however, a starting point. And if you are just starting on this journey along with us and are wanting to begin to lay the foundation so you can affect change in a positive way in your community and the partnerships you're influencing, I hope you'll take a moment to grab that. Just go over to endinghumantrafficking.org. You can get instant access to it uh, by visiting that page there. And of course, so much else there, Sandy, all of our podcasts that we've aired over the last seven, almost eight years now, and tons of other resources, including the show notes for this episode. We'll be putting links to the things we've mentioned uh, as well. Uh, In addition, uh, while you're online, if you haven't done this before, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, uh, we'd be so grateful if you took a moment to leave a rating or review, especially if you're utilizing the Apple platform, either on the podcast app or online with iTunes. Uh, If you take a moment to leave a rating or review for the show, that's a huge help to us and our entire community. It helps more people to discover the show who, like you, have a care and concern for human trafficking and want to do something more to build our community. Thank you in advance if you take a moment to do that. Sandy, we'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. Uh, Thank you for everything you've done to uh, bring this conversation to us today. It's great to be here. We'll see you all in two weeks. Take care.